There's the knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. When you're embarking on your cloud mission, all three of these have to be taken into consideration. You might know how things work in an on-premises world, but now you're thrust into the world of serverless and platforms as a service. Sure, you've got the trusty documentation from your vendor of choice, but docs only know what they know, and in all likelihood, they're going to be out of date. Thus, the map for your cloud mission has areas in which it merely says, here there be dragons. And then there's the edge of the map, a gaping maw of unknowable terror, or a pit filled with puppies. It's probably puppies, right? Welcome to Day 2 Cloud, a frank discussion of what happens when Cloud stops being polite and starts getting real. This is Episode 6, and I am your host, Ned Bellavance, Ned1313 on the Twitters. Joining me today is Jamie Phillips, a senior software developer at Century One, working remotely from East Tennessee, where he works on Windows by day and Linux by night. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Good to be here. So Windows by day and Linux by night, huh? That's uh, kind of a contrary to uh, opposing sides, or I guess maybe not so much anymore. Yeah, it's not so much anymore. So I've had an interest in Linux since probably about 2010. So I started development in 2007. And, you know, .NET Core came along finally, and I didn't have to mess with Mono. And, you know, Windows 10 is slowly feeling a little bit more like Linux. And, <laughs> you know, Linux is 50% of Azure. So it's a good time to put those skills to use. Yeah, yeah. It's it's no longer like a Pepsi versus Coke. It's uh, maybe it's all RC Cola now. I don't know. Well, I don't know what the metaphor <laughs> would be anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's it's probably like, you know, um, Dr. Pepper. Okay. I mean, who doesn't like a good Dr. Pepper, Cause, honestly? Because it depends on where you live. It's either bottled by Coca-Cola or by Pepsi. Interesting. Now, see, I didn't know that. And today I learned something. <laughs> Well, I think, I think we'll have some more to learn as well. Uh, so the reason that I wanted to have you on the show is because you have a pretty interesting story about building a new application on Microsoft Azure. So first, can you tell me a little bit about what the application was, what the business requirements for the application were, and, and why you chose to deploy it on the cloud as opposed to on-premises? The company that I used to work for ran a national brand that had dealers located nationwide and they needed a way to send out firmware updates for their programming tools for these products and to manage the dealerships from a distributor slash corporate level. And the existing application when I was hired in was written in ASP hmm. and they were getting support that they were paying for yearly, kind of like a perpetual license for this. So it was time to revamp that and to make that a little bit more modern. Mm -hmm. So we decided to rebuild that using Orchard CMS, considering we were a team of .NET developers, <laughs> which was a good fit because it gave us a lot of the content management features that the homegrown solution just didn't do really well. And it allowed us to extend the platform with our own modules to add support for the things we need to do, like the concept of a dealership, employees of a dealership, and other types of functionality that we would need um, in those dealers. Okay. Yep. And so for people who aren't familiar with Orchard CMS being me as one of them, uh, what is Orchard CMS and, and how does that fit into the, the larger application? So as you know, if you're a .NET developer looking for a content management system, it's kind of few and far between. Hmm. There's things like Kentico, 
.NET Nuke, which I guess has a new name now, maybe. Um, Sitefinity, um, SharePoint, which nobody wants to work on that as a CMS. And then there's Orchard, right? And Orchard is an open source project that was started mainly by Microsoft uh, back in the day. And it's still maintained by several Microsoft employees actively work on it, but it's MIT licensed. And so that was a good place for us to start with getting some of the content management system type modules that we just didn't want to do the development ourselves of. So uh, you can find it on GitHub. Just search for Orchard. It's okay. pretty standard stuff. It's MVC based. Um, there's lots of really cool dynamic things going on inside of there. So they use the dynamic keyword quite a bit. So, so that was one of the reasons we, we kind of chose that is because it's freely available and it was .NET based. Okay. And it provided obviously a lot of functionality that didn't exist in the application you were replacing. That is correct. And that application you were replacing, that was running on-premises at the customer's data center? Is that where it was running? Yes, it was running on-premises in the corporate headquarters. Okay. Uh, on one server that nobody knew how to restore. <laughs> the, the code wasn't really in source control, right? So we were we were really starting from scratch. Wow. And um, when you're starting from scratch, you can kind of re-envision some of the, the infrastructure and the architecture of your application, and you can bring in the libraries and things that you know you want to use. And one of those things, back to your question about, you know, why the cloud? Mm -hmm. When you're in a company that's really large, about a thousand employees, and you only have three operations people working in your IT ops team, mm -hmm. um, they're running a lot of on-premise data center stuff, and there's a call center, so there's a lot of on-premise voice communication. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they just didn't have the time. Right. And that's, I think that's a common thing that developers typically overlook is that ops team stressed out. You know, they're, <laughs> they have a large demand on such a small group with a small budget. And you're just asking for a new server out of nowhere when you're ready to deploy. So moving to Azure specifically, platform as a service options in the cloud really takes the pressure off that group. And if you do it in a smart way where you include that team, in the decision-making process, I think it's a win-win for everybody because they don't have to worry about running servers and you don't have to worry about servers. So I, there's a key thing you said there, and I, I want to I repeat that, is that you consulted with the ops people before you started spitting up stuff in Azure. Um, I've encountered several times where developers have gone off and spun up resources in Azure without talking to the ops folks. And then kind of like asking for a server out of nowhere, uh, asking for ops support for Azure out of nowhere, and the ops team gets caught flat-footed. So how did that conversation go? Were they real excited that you were going to Azure, or were they amenable to that, or, or did they have their um, reservations about doing it? So I learned early on in my career, so I've mainly been a developer in the IT department, but developers don't really talk to to the IT ops team. No. And so I learned really early on in my career, you need to make those team members your friends. So <laughs> have lunch with them, hang out with them, you know, talk to them on a regular basis. Same thing with security, right? Because if people know what you're going to do before you go into a meeting and just drop the bomb, mm -hmm. it goes pretty well. And I think they viewed it as an opportunity for, for a big win for the whole department that this application went live and went out. And they didn't have to be on call and they didn't have to support it. And that's the big thing, right? Is when you move to platform as a service, really the developers, 
somewhat unpopular opinion, but really the developers <laughs> kind of take on a lot of that on call because there are no servers for the operations team to really manage. Right. So when you were designing the initial architecture for the application, you said you were going to use Orchard CMS. And you also looked to use platform as a service on Azure. So what components were you planning to use in Azure? And uh, were any of them, did you have to revise that architecture when you looked a little deeper? So as far as what services we were going to use, we were going to use Azure SQL DB. So that's SQL Server as a pla uh, platform as a service. Mm -hmm. We were going to use Azure App Services, which for our web hosting. And then we were going to use Azure Blob Storage or Azure storage in general. Okay. And um, we had to create a lot of the custom modules for things that didn't exist inside of Orchard. Okay. Like an example is, which I think there's there was kind of beta support early on when we started the process for blob storage to be the media storage for a lot of the content for images and PDFs and things like that. So that piece was there. In Hibernate works with SQL Server, and there's no weird things, gotchas like cross database joins and things like that you have to worry about. So Azure SQL was kind of an easy drop in. Mm -hmm. The The more difficult part was we decided to use Azure Active Directory for authentication because hmm. if you're using Azure AD for authentication, that's something we don't even have to worry about. We didn't have to run our own identity server. So there's lots of advantages there. It's, it's kind of hard to mess up <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, when you're configuring it. So Azure AD was kind of interesting with Orchard because there really wasn't a module to support Azure AD authentication. So we wrote that, and that is now part of core Orchard CMS, which hmm. is kind of neat. Um, so now that plugs into the whole security model of Orchard, um, all driven from Azure AD. So that's one of the things we decided to go with and it makes a lot of sense. So you talked about app service being there, and obviously that replaces what would typically be the, be the web tier. Um, so you don't have to have web VMs. Then you've got Azure SQL providing your database functionality, so you don't need an Azure uh, VM running SQL. You're using Azure Storage for the files and media, so you don't need a file server or an NFS server or anything like that. And then you've got Azure AD for your authentication, so you don't have to spin up an Active Directory domain and maintain that. So that's that's a lot of overhead that you got removed because you used all the platform as a service. Um, one point that you made that I thought was interesting was there wasn't native integration with Azure storage as the place to put all of your uh, media files. And I know having set up um, some WordPress sites, uh, that does exist now for at least WordPress. So I don't have to worry about uh, my app service filling up with media files. Is that kind of what you uh, you saw when you were first deployed the Orchard CMS that it was filling up your app service instances? No, we we actually avoided that ahead of time. Good for you. Because <laughs> we spent a lot of time reading up on on Azure Storage and and how you use it. And you know, a lot of people when they get ready to to deploy an app to to like Azure App Services, they don't really think about how it's going to scale. Mm -hmm. And if you're using shared session state, that's not going to scale well if you're storing it on the web server not right. in the database. So that's one like tweak we had to make, which can hurt performance, depends on how you want to scale. Um, the Azure storage thing that really got us was the difference between public and private storage hmm. okay. and, and using the SAS tokens. That was one of the things, the single access tokens, that was one of the things that really kind of got us later because a lot of our content was didn't have to be private. 
we just didn't want to index by search engines. Mm -hmm. And at some point, search engines started indexing what was either through our site, which had a robots, a no robots.txt file, or through Azure Blob Storage itself. And so we had to switch that to private and start using SAS tokens, which was a little bit of a code change for us. Yeah. And so that was something that kind of bit us a few months later. Huh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. So uh, I guess the web indexers just crawl Azure storage to see anything that's available publicly and index it. Is that kind of what happened? Or was, was it working off of links that it found uh, you know, within your, your website? So we've seen both. Okay. And I don't know like what it was that was generating that, but that was something that, you know, I've not looked into a whole lot since then. Um, it was easy just to flip it to private, make a code change to, mm -hmm. you know, do the one-time access tokens. So every request would get its own token. Um, and then we didn't have to worry about it anymore. But that was, that was something that definitely caught us by surprise. And you read a lot about like AWS S3 mm -hmm. and how a lot of people have things that are meant to be private, but they configured them as public. Yeah, And so we tried to be conscientious of, of that issue and still got bit by it. <laughs> hmm. Wow, yeah. I mean, and then the the content that you're talking about, that, that media, that was not necessarily private in the sense that no one could see it, but you wanted it served up through your content management system, not, you know, uh, searchable just through it through an engine, right? Is that sort of the, the distinction yeah, there? Yeah, that, that was the biggest crutch was was the fact that it was popping up in search engines with direct links and mm. it was bypassing. So it, like I said, it wasn't the fact that it was really sensitive data. It was just data. We didn't want it to be searchable other than through our application. Okay. So yeah, that's a, that's a good takeaway for, for listeners is even if it's public information, you still may want to make it private and surface it publicly through some other means. It's interesting. Um, so the other thing that you, you talked about a little bit was Azure AD for authentication. So um, did you look at any other uh, identity solutions or was it pretty much Azure AD uh, straight away? Orchard had its own built-in user management. You know, it's pretty much the ASP.NET user management. We looked at identity server and for the types of things that we wanted to do and for the capabilities, because we were going to wire this into providing email for all the dealers and dealers employees mm -hmm. and the way we were going to control the email was to use uh, office 365 which works really well if we already had people with their identities in azure ad mm -hmm. so that's why we started down that road is the bigger picture of we can authenticate users get them used to azure ad if we if and when we roll out outlook that should be a fairly seamless transition so that way we can provide email addresses for, for these dealerships or for, for employees that wanted it. So it was an easy opt-in. And another big advantage of using Azure AD, and one of the reasons we chose that was for some of the self-serviceability. Mm -hmm. So we could allow people to reset their own passwords. We could turn on MFA if we wanted it. And so that was another big advantage is it gave us a little bit more controls for things that we couldn't do easily if we were to use I guess identity server could be set up self-service, but some of those things we'd have to fill in some pieces. And so Azure right. AD kind of provided that whole solution. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a lot less uh, management and upkeep and it kind of just works, right? <laughs> you don't have to worry about setting it up in three different regions and, and making sure that everything's synchronizing properly. Uh, it's just a service that you consume. Um, yes. 
and the interesting thing that the other thing you mentioned uh, was its integration with Office 365, and it's kind of funny because you know I go out to clients and they are using Office 365, and I'm like, okay, you already have Azure AD, and they kind of look at me like, what are you talking about? I just have Office 365. I'm like, no, 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 the identity system behind Office 365 is Azure AD. So whether or not you realized you were setting it up, you already have that all set up. So if you want to use that as authentication in Azure, you can do that. It's pretty straightforward. Yes, that's that's something that originally when we did this project, only the subset of the company was using Azure AD. Okay. And so when we rolled out Azure company-wide, we had to redo a lot of the Azure AD configuration to replicate employees with one Azure AD Connect job to two different Azure ADs. One mm. being the Office 365 one, and then the other one being this business unit's separated directory. Okay. So, so that was two. another valuable to learn, too, is that moving to the cloud requires a lot more planning than you ever imagined. <laughs> you know, that was the that was the thing that, like, you know, I was all gung-ho, and I, I was leading the charge, and then some problems you would have never foreseen. Like, right. You just want to get some identities in the cloud. You set up a connect and sync whatever identities you want to Azure AD and you think you're good to go. And then you realize that, oh, I want to add Office 365. Some things can use the existing Azure AD. Sometimes you got to set up a new one. And so it definitely planning that out is very interesting process. And that's, that's one thing. Another piece of information is, you know, pay the money to talk to somebody, you know, talk to Microsoft, like say, here's my plan. You know, is this solid? Is there, is there something that's going to bite me in the rear? You know, right. and there's, there's lots of people on Twitter that's willing to help. I'm sure, you know, lots of episodes of this podcast are going to provide great information for, for listeners. And, and that would be like a big takeaway from if I had to do it over again was plan, plan, plan. It's weird to say that because you're like the cloud, I can move fast and break things. Right. But then you end up in this, in this section where you're in a weird point where oh, I need to move these subscriptions to my enterprise agreement if you have one of those. And I got all these identities and this subscription uses this tenant and this other subscription uses a different tenant. And I have multiple accounts that have access to different things. And it just, it explodes. Yeah. There's um someone from Microsoft wrote a really lengthy blog post that tried to explain subscriptions and tenants and enterprise agreements and how all of those different components work together. And it was like, it had to be over 3000 words. And I still think they didn't quite capture it all. It's just the interplay between all the different components gets confusing really fast. Yes. So, um, Moving into day two and, and starting to manage this environment, I'm, I'm sure, you know, it was set up and, and working initially, but you probably ran into some issues uh, as performance changed and you were monitoring and seeing the how the application was functioning. So let, let's step through a little bit of that. I know you, you mentioned uh, in your notes a little bit that there were some quirks to the Azure app service that made things kind of interesting for you. What, what were some of those quirks that you had to deal with? So one of them was a really a setting that you would have never noticed, right? Hmm. So there's a there's a setting in Azure App Service called Always On, and and by default that's that's not toggled on, right? Hmm. So your App Service to kind of help you know lower resource usage across the Azure environment, and it can I've seen it affect my billing in a positive way, but. Okay. 
it will it will shut down your process. Hmm. So okay. so if you don't have that turned on, your app pretty much goes to sleep. Okay. And and you can see if, if you're running thousands of websites on a on a platform as a service, the ones that are not active, yeah, you'd want to go sleep. Um, well, for something like Orchard CMS that really needs to warm up and and load a lot of components in memory and keep them there and populate like an in hibernate cache for your, for your database queries, going to sleep is not a good thing. So yeah, we started getting like a lot of we started getting a lot of, of reports of like, well, the application's really slow. Mm-hmm. And of course, we would hop into Azure, we'd look around and be like, I don't know, seems fine to us. Mm-hmm. Like it's fast. You know, you reported a problem, I went and hit it. It's quick for me, you know, right. sub two seconds for a backend office app. That seems acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, page load speeds seem fine when we check them. We've done a lot of performance tuning on that stuff. Come to find out it was this always on setting that it was just shutting down and, and going to sleep. So you can turn it always on, which means that it will not go to sleep, mm-hmm. which is exactly what we wanted. But it's one of those things that, you know, if you're not paying attention to all the settings or you're not reading or it's relatively new, mm-hmm. then it's going to be one of those things that you're like, I don't know why my users report my app slow. I don't see the same behavior. <laughs> and that's because they've already warmed it up for you. Right, right. It's an, it's incredibly yeah. frustrating to them because they're the first ones to log on. So the application warms up. It seems super slow. And then by the time you're looking, you're like, no, it's fine. Everything looks good. What are you talking about? And they're like, yep feeling a little crazy for a second. Yeah, that's it's it's interesting that it was kind of was it buried or was it just kind of like sitting in plain sight? It's kind of in plain sight. It's just, you know, there's lots of things they kind of turn on by default. Like mm-hmm. when you create an app service from scratch in the portal, PHP's turned on. Well, you don't from a security perspective, you probably don't want that running, so you turn it off. Mm-hmm. Uh the default for AS for .net uh for asp.net's 32 bit and that's definitely not what you want right you don't you don't want 32 bit support for some apps you want 64 so you have to toggle that setting so there's lots of little settings in there that sometimes don't seem like a big deal um but very well could be and so read over those carefully because mm-hmm. that's you know you learn that within a week or two after going live because you, you get a lot of weird odd problems <laughs> yeah. that you know, you just you just don't know where they're coming from, and you know that was probably the the most annoying one. Yeah, was was the always on setting. So I get I think probably a good takeaway from that is check the defaults, even if you think you're good on them, and if you see a setting that you don't know what it does, probably good to look up and see what it actually does. Yes, excellent advice. So another thing that you had listed was deployment slots. So what was going on with deployment slots that was kind of quirky for you? Um, you know, I think more for me was knowing we could use it. Oh, okay. That was that was that was one of those things like you kind of heard people talking about it, but you're trying to ship to a deadline, it's new to you, you think it's a good idea and you know, it's one of those things that pops in your head and you're like, you know, I, 5 years past my first exposure to Azure and three years past this project, I'm like, yeah, I would use deployment slots because I can deploy my new version of the app. It'll warm up and then I can flip the, flip the URLs, which they call swap and people get a, an application that's already ready to go. Yeah. I've seen the feature and I didn't entirely understand how it worked. So basically you load the new version of 
the application in the you know second deployment slot and then you're doing a swap and it's just starts sending traffic via the the production url to this other slot is that basically all it does yeah so my understanding um which may not be 100 percent accurate but it's a it's good for illustration here basically they spin up an identical app service that just has a different dns entry mm -hmm. internally and then when you swap them it just flips the dns so it takes a little bit for all your traffic to go over but okay. all your traffic eventually will get redirected. Okay. And so if your app's warm and up and running, um, then you can you can swap it. And basically, it's just DNS change in the back end to mm -hmm. a different app service that you know has your new version on it. So it's a good way to test. And Azure now has this feature called testing in production, which they've moved it around a little bit. So some of the documentation may not be accurate. <laughs> that will say, I can send 10% of my traffic to my deployment slot so that way i can say do i know it can hold up to traffic other than just some smoke tests right right that's uh aws has has something similar with um i want to say with traffic manager in route 53 uh, route 53 which is kind of the equivalent of traffic manager to a degree where you can say i want to send 10 percent or you know 20 percent of requests to my other slot or my other instance and then if things look good i can slowly change that percentage until i've got 100 percent on the new one and zero percent on the old one then i can shut the old one down so it sounds like it's kind of a similar uh idea it's very similar and I'm, I'm glad you brought up traffic manager that's that's another one of those things if you're deploying an app a web app to azure my advice is always put a traffic manager in front of it so traffic manager is a DNS solution that allow you to load balance using DNS between multiple instances. Mm -hmm. And that's good if you need to end up scaling to multi-regions because about a year later, you know, the East US had an outage in Azure. Mm -hmm. Kind of rare, but the whole cloud didn't have a good year in 2018 <laughs> at all. But yeah. um, our, our app service went down and people couldn't do their jobs. And that's because we didn't have multiple instances set up in multiple regions. And that took a lot of patience to add in a traffic manager, schedule downtime to repoint our DNS entry, our domain to the traffic manager endpoint to then point that back to the app service. So my advice is pay the money to put a traffic manager in place whether you're actually going to load balance between multiple instances or not because that'll give you flexibility in the future if you have to add infrastructure mm -hmm. nobody right. will know right and you won't have to make any big structural changes which is extremely valuable yeah yeah how about it um another thing you had in here was web deploy uh i'm not even sure what that is so uh what what is web deploy and why would i why would i need to know about that with app service okay so web deploy is probably a .NET full framework thing now okay. not so much core you can you can still do web deploy with core um, they have a new deployment model so web deploy is a fancy zip file with a little bit of metadata in there that you can bundle up your application and then deploy it so you can call the azure app service endpoint and send this package to it and it will deploy what's in the package to your, your app service. So that comes real handy when you're doing automated deployments. 
So okay. we were doing everything from the start with a build server producing this web deploy package. And then we can deploy that web deploy package to multiple environments straight up to Azure App Service. And it's the same package. It didn't have to be special to do on-premise or in the cloud. Okay. Well, it seems very useful, yep. especially for that automated DevOps yep. sort of deployment. Mm -hmm. A lot of people probably use the built-in source control uh, build mechanism in mm -hmm. App Service, which is perfectly fine. But Orchard CMS is a large application, and we were we were pre-compiling it, um, which it can compile on the fly. But to make it faster, we were pre-compiling it. And that build could take 15 to 20 minutes sometimes okay. uh, for a full release build. So the deploy package was much better than putting the load on a production server to do the build. Right. On yeah, the side. No. So that's something to be aware of. Yeah. Okay. Um, moving to a different service to Azure SQL DB. Uh, it looks like you know, there were a couple performance things that you had to look at with that and some quirks about that service as well. Yeah. So Azure... If you don't use the virtual CPUs, which is a new option for Azure SQL DB, and they're quite expensive, mm -hmm. they have this unit called a DTU, which is kind of a blend of CPU and memory. Yeah, I've and they don't really that tell you what that equates to. <laughs> yeah, um, so we started off with ten DTUs that ended up not being a huge load with the some odd seven hundred users that we had. Mm -hmm. But if you're running an e-commerce site, 10 DTUs would not be enough. But trying to figure out what that sweet spot is, is uh, really difficult. So if you can do a lot of data collection ahead of time and kind of know what your performance bottlenecks are going to be, and you can offset those. So we were using in Hibernate for our ORM. And within, with in Hibernate, you can do some object-level caching of your queries. So we did a lot of that optimization to offset the load on the database so we didn't have to scale up to the next largest level. Okay. Um, which, so you, you know, you could always start big and scale down, <laughs> which would take your database kind of offline a little bit real quick to, to scale down. Right. But it's something that, you know, might be worth considering. Right. Yeah. I, so that's interesting that you were letting sort of the app service side of things do a lot of the caching. Uh, and, and some take some of the work off of the database server as much as possible, and that kept your your DTU consumption down. Um, I know that Microsoft publishes uh, it's like a DTU calculation spreadsheet that you take performance metrics from your SQL servers, and then you dump that into this spreadsheet, and it's supposed to kind of give you an estimation on your DTUs. Uh, so I've tried that for a couple clients, and uh, it does not seem to be particularly accurate. I don't know if you used that sheet at all, but it was uh, it was it was pretty far off for the the clients I tried it for. That's generally what I've heard from a lot of people. I've not personally used it, but yeah, it's it's kind of hit or miss whether it actually works out that way for you or not. Okay. Um, I think the big thing is is really understanding what your load's going to be, and we had really good. SQL developer on our team who kind of had a good idea of what the load was going to be. And, you know, we, we had a really good tester uh, on our team that, that could generate a decent load on our app. And so we could kind of get a ballpark of where we thought our issues were going to be. Okay. Yeah. That seems super useful. And especially were they using um, Azure to also generate that load or was that something they were just generating locally off of some horsepower that you already had? 
They were doing some of that locally. Uh, we did use some of the what used to be VSTS. There's a there's a test um, section that you can do like you know ramp up to a thousand machines mm-hmm. over the course of like five ten minutes and see what happens. So we've done a little bit of that testing to see when it would die. Okay. You know when it would just stop responding. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, because I just wanted to find what the limit was, and then you know you could kind of start seeing from there where the hotspots were. So that's kind of okay. how we handled that one. Um, some other quirks with with Azure SQL DB, you know, you get point in time backup, which is kind of nice. So um, the backups kind of happen automatically, which are nice. But just realize that your backups are kind of in Azure, and mm-hmm. so if you want to have some other types of backups, then it may be worth, you know, exporting out to some DAC packs and storing those in storage somewhere in a different region in case you need to grab that and, and spit up another instance somewhere. The doing the geo replication with Azure SQL DB, they've added failover groups now, but originally it was a little bit more kind of manual with some of the replication. So you could read from the other replica, but your rights wouldn't switch over. Hmm. automatically so failover groups kind of handle that so just know that if you're going to make sure you deploy to multiple regions to really think about all those little intricacies of of sql db and cross database joins those are no-nos those are not going to happen in azure sql db um so things like that that people are probably used to doing on premise you have to definitely tease out luckily for us it was kind of a greenfield development so we didn't have to worry about some of that. Yeah, no, that's good to know because I think that it is more common on in, in on-premises applications to do those t- types of operations. And you know, we had one client that we were doing work for uh, that wanted to use um, Azure SQL and, and they were using a lot of the cross database joins and, and I think they were using a SQL agent as well. And so we had to figure out ways to restructure it so they didn't have to do those cross database joins and, and find another way to handle some of the business logic that the SQL agent was doing. It was, it was a fun project, but y- if you didn't know all that going in and you just picked Azure SQL, you, you'd be kind of upset about it. Yes, you would be. And that was the, <laughs> that was the big kicker for us originally was just trying to figure out where the original app might've assumed data belonged to it when it actually did it. And then what we ended up doing was just creating jobs to sync some of that basic data every night. So things like territories or, supported zip codes and things like that we would just sync every night okay so that was pretty static throughout the day it didn't change all that often so we would just duplicate the data and and sync it across yeah it'd be weird if a territory suddenly changed zip codes that doesn't usually happen (laughs) imagine that at least yeah it's well they're weird business rules (laughs) yeah well i'm sure so um territories are are kind of fluid in some dealer networks Gotcha. So it was a very interesting challenge. Okay. Well, we're starting to come up on time. So if you had to kind of package things up into three main takeaways for listeners, what would those three main takeaways be? Plan. Think about the services you're going to use, how you plan to use them, and find somebody that has some experience working in Azure and at least, you know, kind of bounce some ideas off of them. There's plenty of people that are out there willing to point you in the right direction uh, and provide help. There's consulting services that are available for people that need it. So that would be something I would say definitely leverage. 
leverage your account rep from Microsoft because um, you, you need to go in with a good solid plan. Mm-hmm. The other piece of advice would be think about your data and whether you want it to be public. And when I say public, just assume it's on the internet and everybody can find it. Okay. Um, not just partially exposed or whatnot. And then um, the other big one is just read, read and learn as much as you can about all the things you're going to use and, and try to understand the settings that are definitely going to bite you in the rear end, which is <laughs> a large chunk of them. So, you know, if something can be turned off, then understand why it's turned on by default. Right. Um, yeah. Cause that's, that's one of those things. It's like, do you really need all those things running? And what I've found is I pretty much don't need a lot of that stuff running. I don't need Python support or PHP support. Right. Um, I don't need some of the default documents that are that are set up in an Azure App Service. So, you know, reading and understanding those settings and, and what they're going to do uh, will go a long way. Wow, fantastic. That's some really good points. So if folks want to learn more about you, what you're up to, um, where can they follow you? Where can they find your work? So you can find me uh, on the web at philipsj.net. That is my personal blog. It's got links to all my social media and to my GitHub account. Uh, on Twitter, I'm philipsj73. And those are probably the two easiest ways to find out more about me and find Great. out what I'm up to. Yeah, I, I was looking through your blog a little bit earlier today. You've got a bunch of Terraform posts, which is uh, a favorite tool of mine. So I was like, "Woo, Terraform. That's not the topic for this show. Yeah, but... <laughs> ter- yeah Terraform's awesome. It's just arm hurts. And oh, yeah. Terraform makes it a little easier. <laughs> oh, that's a good, very good point. Well put. Well, thank you so much, Jamie, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks to Jamie for appearing on Day 2 Cloud, and thanks to you, dear listener, for tuning in. If you like the show, please subscribe and let me know on Twitter. If you have suggestions for future shows, I'd love to hear them. Until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.